This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome back to the Knowledge of Wharton podcast. I'm Rachel Kipp, Associate Editorial Director of the Knowledge of Wharton website. Today we're going to talk about a research paper that asks the question, is it possible to use the tax structure to encourage people to take on careers that do social good? And here to talk to us is the co-author of that paper, Ben Lockwood. He's a Wharton professor of business economics and public policy. Ben, thanks for joining us. Hi there. Thanks for having me. First of all, could you talk a little bit about the premise behind this paper? Sure. So, um, so the idea behind the paper was was really sort of motivated by looking at the debates that we see in policy and in the popular press about what the tax system should look like. Um, so conventionally, when economists think about the optimal tax system, we sort of think about trading off the benefits of kind of targeting resources to lower income people, the benefits of redistribution, against the efficiency costs. So when you have higher taxes, uh, those higher marginal tax rates sort of reduce the benefits of economic growth or of being really innovative or of working really hard. And so that lower incentive, it's thought, um, makes people kind of less inclined to go out and create economic growth and and uh, and be real innovators and so on. Um, and, uh, and so in that model, the kind of key driver of optimal tax rates, especially at the top of the income distribution, has to do with the efficiency costs. The question is, if you increase tax rates a little bit, how much less do people work? How much less do high earners work? Uh, and one of the things that we were struck by is when you look around at popular debates, that's often not what you hear people talking about when they discuss or when they argue for higher or lower taxes on on high earners. Instead, what you hear a lot of discussion about is uh, questions about what the rich are actually doing, whether they're sort of the job creators, the innovators in the economy that are hiring lots of people, or whether they're kind of uh, rent seekers who are sitting back and, and you know, leeching off the resources of the rest of, of society, um, just to, to kind of caricature uh, the, the two views. Um, and so our goal with this paper was to try to map those popular debates into a more formal optimal tax model. So what, what we thought was those debates are better captured by a model in which people can go into different industries. They can select different sorts of professions. And some of those professions have sort of positive spillovers onto the rest of society. They actually create benefits that are higher than the private compensation than that people receive, uh, whereas other professions might actually generate benefits that are lower than the private compensation they receive. And so if you believe that, then you might want to use public policy to kind of try to encourage people to go into those socially useful uh, careers where they're generating lots of social benefits. Now, how do you figure out, now it's probably obvious in some professions that they are creating a lot of social goods, such as a teacher or a researcher, but there's a lot of gray areas too. So how did you figure that out? Like which careers did create social good and maybe which didn't as much? There's a ton of uncertainty here. You're exactly right. Um, and, and one of the things that makes it a little more nuanced, too, is that it's not just which careers are generating lots of benefits, but which careers are generating benefits that are relatively larger or smaller than the private compensation that, that people are are receiving. Um, so I should be upfront. Our paper does not actually attempt to estimate those spillovers or those externalities directly. Instead, what we do is uh, 
present basically a, a theoretical framework for how we can think about using taxes or other policies to encourage people to go into professions that uh, that that do have such spillovers. And then we look to a broad swath of existing economic literature, which does try to estimate those sorts of things. So there are individual papers here and there that over the last couple generations have made have have uh, attempted to estimate those sorts of spillovers in particular industries. Um, so just to give you a couple uh, a couple examples, for uh, for example, there's um, there's a nice paper by Raj Chetty and co-authors that uh, looks at the benefits that are uh, created by um, by school teachers, by elementary school teachers and, and public school teachers, uh, and looks at the value added that they create by, say, teaching a class full of students. Um, and one of the things that they find is if is using sort of natural variation across generated by which students are assigned to which teachers, they find that teachers uh, who are very good at, at adding value to students' test scores over the course of a year, uh, those students often then go on to have higher earnings and lower rates of uh, teen pregnancy and other things that are sort of beneficial in, in society. Um, and there, by using tax records and the like, they're able to actually put some numbers on that. So they, they find that if you were just to take a sort of uh, a, a sort of thought experiment. If you were to take a teacher from around the bottom of the distribution of teacher quality and replace them with a teacher that's sort of in the middle of the distribution, uh, that would raise the net present value of their students' earnings. And if you add up those those increases in earnings across a whole classroom for a year, you get an increase on the order of a quarter million dollars. So that's something from by replacing a, a, a sort of inferior teacher with a with a uh, with a median one with an average one, um, that's an increase in student salaries that's way bigger than the salaries that the teachers themselves actually receive. So that's the sort of calculation that you can do to kind of figure out the ratio between the social benefits that are being created by a given profession and the private compensation that they're, that they're receiving. Um, Another example along these lines is a is a nice paper uh, by Murphy and Tappel in uh, in uh, 2006, I believe, that looks at the benefits from medical research. So there's there's sort of a thought that one of the benefits of medical research is to increase longevity, to increase the the length of people's lives, um, and you can do some kind of economic uh, revealed preference calculations to figure out how much people are willing to pay for longer lives or, or increased longevity through through uh, what's known as the value of a statistical life. You do things like um, like look at how much people were willing to pay for airbags when those first came out and how much uh, and how much extra safety airbags provided, stuff like that. Um, and so by using that kind of revealed preference strategy to place a monetary value on the increased longevity from medical research, they find that uh, that that the kind of uncaptured gains in GDP over the last generation or two um, are on the order of 25% of GDP growth. So, so a really large amount of, of overall growth has come in this sort of uncaptured dimension from medical research, which is actually much larger than the private compensation that medical researchers are paid. Um, and so those kinds of examples, and those are actually, when we review the literature, those examples of uh, primary, primary school teachers and medical researchers are by far the largest spillovers that we find across any of the, any of the professions. Um, but those are the kinds of studies that we draw on to kind of calibrate these spillovers for a bunch of different professions. And then we can build those into our model to say, what would this imply about the optimal tax rate structure or other kinds of policies? Now, are there indications that the way the tax system is currently structured is maybe nudging people towards jobs that maybe are 
don't do as much social good that don't have these types of spillovers? Um, maybe. So so I should say a little bit more about what we think the optimal tax structure would look like, and then we can kind of compare that to what we see in, in practice, because um, there are some similarities and, and, and some differences. Um, <clears throat> so... If you were motivated by this idea that some professions or some industries have these spillovers, positive or or negative, uh, a kind of first pass that you might make at optimal policy would just be to directly subsidize or tax different industries based on whether those benefits are positive or or negative. and, uh, and and we do a couple calculations along those lines in the paper. Now, I think there are a few reasons that you m- might be a little skeptical about that or that you might wonder whether that sort of policy would work particularly well. I mean, you can uh, you can imagine that if um, if if uh, education was was thought to have big positive spillovers and finance was thought to have negative spillovers, then um, then I can easily foresee lots of financial consultants uh, reclassifying themselves as uh, educating their clients about about uh, how finance works so that they could qualify for that sort of subsidy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, put differently, although it's easy for us right now in the data to determine who works in what in what sectors or in what professions, that's in part because there aren't there's nothing at stake in honestly reporting what sector or profession you work in. But if all of a sudden we started really subsidizing or really taxing different professions based on those categorizations, there would be a much greater in, uh, incentive to misreport or to make things cloudy or, or whatever. Or even um, to pass legislation kind of nudging people one way or the other. I mean, we've seen a lot of that with the new tax reform bill that passed is that now states are doing things so their constituents can maybe get out of some of those things that would now be taxed that weren't taxed before. Yes, exactly. That's the other thing. So if you started uh, individually taxing or subsidizing various professions, once those kinds of tax instruments are on the table for adjustment, you can imagine large lobbying groups springing up to try to uh, to, to try to push them one way or another, um, possibly uh, possibly away from whatever the economic research says those, those spillovers are. So if we're not going to tax based on profession, because it sounds like that has too much wiggle room. What's another way of doing it, or what did you? What are the ways that you looked at? Right. So another kind of possibility would be to just note that in the existing economy, uh, there the support of different um, the, the sort of distribution of income differs across different professions. So people in finance have incomes that have one distribution, uh, actually a pretty high distribution. People working uh, as as kindergarten teachers have a pretty different distribution of incomes. It's a much lower distribution. And what that means is that tax rates, which fall on high earners, uh, tend to fall more heavily on people working in finance, whereas taxes that are, um, you know, the the marginal tax rate that affects uh, people toward the lower end of the distribution are marginal tax rates, which affect, um, which which more primarily affect uh, affect kindergarten teachers and the like. Um, Or put differently, if you sort of increase marginal tax rates in the areas of the distribution between what kindergarten teachers tend to earn and what financiers tend to earn, what you'll do is you'll relatively lower take-home incomes for financiers and increase tax revenues while not lowering the, the take-home pay of kindergarten teachers. And so you could, in, and in fact, you could use the increased tax revenues to even subsidize people uh, toward the bottom of the distribution. All this is to say that because there are sort of different income distributions in different professions, we could potentially use the nonlinear tax uh, code that we already have, just the pre-existing income tax, to kind of relatively raise or lower the benefits to earning in different parts of the income distribution overall. And that would implicitly 
change the returns to going into one profession versus another. Uh, and so we also look at that as a possible instrument where, where we say, suppose the government can't actually uh, directly target various professions, but instead just has the same kind of income tax that we, that we currently have. Um, what then would that optimal nonlinear income tax look like if you were designing it to try to kind of improve the, the allocation of talent across individuals? So this was kind of the backstory that I wanted to to tell the foundation I wanted to lay to make sense of comparing what we find to be the sort of optimal looking tax relative to, to what we actually see in society. Um, and I think there are a couple interesting things here. So, so one interesting thing is if you take these, exist, these estimated spillovers from the literature at face value and you kind of do a numerical uh, you run a computer program to figure out what the optimal tax rates are, um, you actually get something that's not so different from the kinds of tax rates that we currently see. So uh, so we found that, that then tax rates at the top of the distribution would be somewhere around 40%. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that's all without any – that's assuming that there's no benefit at all from redistribution. This is just a tax code where, whose sole goal is, uh, is to kind of raise efficiency by efficiently allocating uh, talented people into various programs. Professions. If mm-hmm. on top of that you wanted to do additional redistribution, like like I think there's evidence that we that we do want to, um, then that would further make make the tax code more progressive. But just just looking at this kind of efficiency maximizing tax code, you'd get something that looks a bit like like what we already have. Um, the uh, the the flip side of that is that, um, like I said, there would also be some benefits from specifically targeting various various professions, uh, and it does seem like our existing tax code does a bit of that too. So there are certain professions, obviously, that are more heavily subsidized than others, or that are more gen- that are that are more frequently part of the um, part of the public sector rather than the private sector. Uh, for example, the um, the National Institute of Health uh, provides lots of grant subsidies that that uh, effectively you know promote and and incentivize basic research basic medical research uh, obviously most public education is uh, is is funded directly from from government spending and so as a result the salaries in those professions are are largely set by the public sector so those are some things that could just directly be be set and adjusted so what would be the optimal way of setting up the tax structure to achieve this goal that you're trying to get at right so so as I was noting, there are some things in the existing tax code that kind of resemble the the, the things we find to be optimal, where where you kind of directly target uh, various professions that are thought to have these positive spillovers. But a big difference is that the spillovers that are estimated in the literature are so large that it suggests that the according optimal subsidies would actually be way bigger than the ones that we currently have, um, and. In some ways, I guess the uh, if if there's a if there's a, a negative um, or or unfortunate implication of our our paper, it's that just adjusting the nonlinear tax code does not achieve very very large targeted welfare gains from this from this sort of uh, from this sort of adjustment. Um, so although you are kind of able to relatively increase the benefits of becoming a teacher versus a financier, there's only so much that you can do with the kind of blunt instrument of the nonlinear income tax. Uh, and and it, and our estimates suggest that the much more targeted uh, effects of just specifically subsidizing some sectors would be very, very large. Now, as I've already mentioned, there, there are some real downsides of trying to do that specific targeting you know it opens door the door to to lobbying and and uh, and, and it might be quite difficult to um, have these sort of general profession specific taxes um, so I think as a 
as a kind of middle ground, a more pragmatic policy that could get a lot of these gains while uh, not opening the door to, to quite so much manipulation um, would be something more like the existing, you know, NIH subsidies or uh, or or public sector schooling uh, with with public sector um, uh, with the public sector determining teacher salaries something like that that we already have but by just but with adjusting those targets more to bring them more into line quantitatively with the large spillovers that we see in those industries or that are estimated in those industries so this would involve you know drastically increasing the amount of public funds that are spent on uh, subsidizing um, university medical research or or drastically increasing the salaries that are that are spent for on, uh, on on quality teachers to encourage you know really talented people to go into those professions. Now, what is the takeaway here for policymakers? Because it seems like this paper is proposing a different way of looking at the tax structure, because right now we look at it really on an income basis. And this suggests looking at it more on profession basis or really based on social good. Yeah, that's right. So, um, so in in some sense, you're right that this flips around a bit the way that at least economists often think about the existing tax structure. On the other hand, you know, I noted at the beginning that one motivation from of this paper was to try to bring our kind of economic models of optimal taxation into alignment with the policy debates that we're already seeing. So in some ways, I think that uh, that that. Public debates are actually out ahead of economy, or have been ahead of economists on this front a bit already. Um, and you often hear policymakers saying things like, "We want to encourage uh, people who are, you know, thinking about going onto Wall Street to instead go into STEM professions and uh, and and you know create new inventions that will increase economic growth." That's really an argument that's in line with this sort of reasoning that there are real benefits from having talented people go into these sectors that that have uh, beneficial spillovers for for the rest of us. Um, so I think the main lesson for policymakers would not be so much this kind of qualitative insight that it's helpful to have to direct talented people into uh, in, into you know and, uh, professions with positive spillovers. Instead, it would be the more quantitative insight that uh, when we do kind of look to the economic studies on this, when we look to the economic literature, there are a few real big, really big standout uh, uh, spillover professions, primarily teaching and, and medical research. And there are already some sorts of economic policy levers that we have at our disposal that could be used to try to encourage talented people to go into those things. And what work is yet to be done on this research? I mean, where would you want to go with this next? Sure. So, um, so I think the the sort of biggest uh, the biggest challenge here, as I as I highlighted early on, is still that these estimates of the spillovers are pretty vague. Um, so we have taken what we what what our reading suggests is the best estimates from the literature right now um, and and it looks like a few of those are quite large but there are several sectors where there's just really no research uh, trying that that successfully quantifies how big these spillovers are um, one of the most important ones uh, right right now I would say is entrepreneurship and new business creation um, so so that's something that I suspect has spillovers and uh, and and would make sense to try to really pin down in a in an economically rigorous way. Um, but because we don't have much information on that yet, we basically had to had to leave those out of the paper. Uh, there are also other sectors that we think have some sorts of maybe more abstract spillovers uh, benefits, but that are just really hard to quantify. So things like um, 
you know, things like art and music are things that probably have very large, uh, very large benefits in some sense. And thinking about how to incorporate those into this kind of framework is something that we basically punted on, but that I think would be interesting for, for future research. Now, it's interesting to me because there's a lot of talk when the tax reform bill is being passed about, from some camps at least, about this idea of trickle-down economics where you give more to the people at the top tiers income-wise and they they sort of respond in turn by creating jobs or giving bonuses to people at the bottom tiers. This is kind of turning that on its ear a little bit and looking more at how everybody could have a spillover effect depending on what your job is. And it doesn't matter what your income is. That's exactly right. So um, so in, in some ways, I don't love the term trickle-down economics because I think it, it was sort of developed as a, as a pejorative way to talk about this one particular uh, right. economic theory that, that having uh, lower tax rates at the, at the top would would you know let let people at the top of the distribution take home more income and then the question is what they do with that income if you believe that what they do with that income is uh, create new n- new jobs and and new businesses and employ lots of people which in turn creates lots of economic growth and and raises the well-being of people sort of throughout the income distribution um, then I, I I think that is a that one way of interpreting that view is to basically just say that the people at the top of the income distribution have these kinds of positive spillovers. Um, and when, when it's kind of reframed in that way, rather than this 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 sort of uh, lightning rod term trickle-down economics, it becomes much easier to kind of think logically about and also to try to bring economic data to bear. So we can say, well, you know, what is it that, th- what are the tasks, what are the jobs that are actually being done by people at the top of the income distribution? Is it plausible or is there evidence that those jobs actually do create those kinds of spillovers for the rest of us? And as you point out, once we ask that of the top of the in- income distribution, there's really no reason to stop there. We might as well ask for all sorts of points across the income distribution, what are the spillovers from the, from the work that people are doing at, at that point in the income distribution? Uh, what, what are the spillovers to the rest of society? Ben, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks very much for having me. You can find all of Knowledge at Wharton's articles and podcasts on our website, which is knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. You can also find our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. It really does help people find the podcast. Thanks. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 